Hello, this is Andrew Harris. You're listening to Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. I'm with uh, my co-host, Andrew Decker. And in this episode, the third episode, we are interviewing Jerry Goldstein. Andrew, what do you think about this interview, man? Wow, it was so exciting. We had the opportunity to be in his office. We were there for about an hour. He was super busy, literally had people coming in and out, answering questions for him as we were setting up. Uh, he talked to us a little bit. We discussed we were gonna, what we were going to interview him. We interviewed him. I dare you to sit back and relax. He is so energetic, so passionate. Yeah. Uh, let's just get right to it because this is going to be fun. Okay. Do I need to start over? Okay. All right. So I'm Andrew Decker, and I'm here with Andrew Harris in our podcast, uh, Texas Criminal Defense. Um, and we are here in the office of Jerry Goldstein, a criminal defense attorney of of note, of wealth, of inspiration to many of us. We're in San Antonio in his office on the 29th floor of the uh, tower building, and he has agreed to share a little bit of time with us as we get ready for the annual Rusty Duncan uh, Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Association meeting. And so first of all, thank you for giving us a little bit of your time. We know your time is incredibly valuable and that... uh, we are blessed just to let you squeeze us into your office for a few minutes. I'm fluttered to have you all here, and quite frankly, uh, uh, it is my pleasure. Well, thank you. So we're going to start off with something easy. You graduated in 1968 from the University of Texas Law School. Um, and and our main question, I think, and, and the question that we look at as, as criminal defense attorneys is how do you maintain the fire? What motivates you to put your pants on and come to work every morning uh, after 50 years? Well, uh, I, quite frankly, uh, in the early 60s, I was a fledgling young hippie. Uh, I had no intent. My dad was a lawyer, but I didn't have any intention of becoming a lawyer. Uh, I actually went to law school so I could stay out of the the draft. Uh, it was I was getting notices that it was my turn to go out and kill or be killed, uh, and I guess a little bit like our current president, I didn't want to go. Uh, I will say that many of my classmates did, uh, and we have met each other on the other side of the earth. Uh, but law school was a very enlightening experience for me. Uh, it showed me a path to a profession where I had an opportunity to try and make a difference. Uh, and that hasn't changed one fucking bit from the day I started. Uh, and I will tell you that it's still exciting. And uh, I still get a chill up my spine and the hair on the back of my neck still stands up every time I walk into a courtroom. and announce ready for trial. Uh, Those words, Your Honor, Jerry Goldstein, on behalf of whoever, uh, my engines start. uh, uh, And that hasn't changed a bit in 50 years. Uh, uh, It's it's exciting. Uh, We happen to be in a profession that's, there's a little bit of street theater, uh, but people's lives and liberty are at stake and uh, we do have an opportunity to change things Uh, you know appearing uh, I'm not sure y'all have but when you 
walk into the Supreme Court of the United States, it's uh, it's inspiring. Uh, not because it's so august. The ceremonial courtroom at the Fifth Circuit is a bigger venue. It's intimate, but you understand that that's an institution like many of our institutions, and that's one of the things I worry about today. I see so many, including our executive, trash institutions. Uh, look, I'm one of the most outspoken, outspoken critics of the Justice Department, of the judiciary. Uh, I don't waste a minute to criticize them when they deserve it, but I'm part of that system. Uh, and I'm proud of being part of that system, and it's the best system, I think, around. And I think it's critically important uh, that we spend our time uh, supporting those institutions uh, because that's what we're doing. That's what we wake up. You see, wake up and put your pants on, put a starched white shirt on or blouse, pull your shoulders back, stick your chin up, and you, you take pride in what you're doing. So um, I, I still get a kick out of it, the idea that uh, you know, let's face it, back in 68, I was doing draft resistor, conscientious gesture cases with Maury Maverick. I'd travel all over the state and all over the country doing that. Uh, Maury always told me you only want to represent people whose crimes you agree with. Uh, that's changed. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, Maury Jr. was an amazing individual. Uh, the, uh, if I can digress for just a moment because he inspired me to do what I do. Don't forget his great-great-grandfather was Samuel Maverick, who in the legend of uh, Paul Revere's etching of the Boston Massacre, uh, it shows Samuel Maverick with Crispus Attucks dying in his arms. Uh, they both lay in state in Faneuil Hall after that. His grandson, Sam Maverick, was a lawyer at the Alamo, who when the commander, William Barrett Travis, wanted to send somebody over to warn uh, uh, Sam Houston at San Jacinto that they were under siege, uh, he sent Sam Maverick. He was a lawyer. He knew he could read and write. Uh, in Willie Morris's book, North Towards Home, uh, Maury Jr. is quoted as saying that's the only time he's certain education ever did anybody in his family any good. <laughs> uh, Saved his life. Yeah, and uh, uh, Maury Jr., when uh, Jack Kennedy was running for president, you can see the Alamo right out my window here, uh, John Kennedy was giving a speech in front of the Alamo, and the, they had no idea what it would be like to have a Catholic running for president for the first time that could win. And there were a quarter million people in that little bitty plaza, and the advance man came back to Murray Jr. and said, we got to get the senator out the back door. Uh, we'll never get him through this crowd. And Murray, made, Murray Jr. made the headlines on both papers we had to at the time. Uh, gentlemen, if there was a back door to the Alamo, we wouldn't have so many dead Texas heroes. Uh, the, uh, I started practicing with people that were, uh, taught me about the importance of, uh, speaking up, uh, and, uh, I haven't quit, and, uh, it, it has been, uh, a life's work, um, uh, it was 1968, I met, uh, my bride of 50 years, uh, Who's still a lovely lady. She's the most beautiful. I, I, she lied to me. She told me she was 11 when we got married. Uh, but uh, 
she, uh, you know, we had a Volkswagen. Mari Maverick and I would travel around. I had a Volkswagen bus. We had taken the seats out, put a Persian carpet down, had little pillows in it, a big peace symbol on the back of it. Ramsey Clark for president sticker on the bumper. Uh, we got run out of more counties than, you know, uh, uh, free speech, free love, or blossoming flower-like from their underground abode. It was a wonderful, inspiring time. Uh, and it was a great time to start practice. Nobody else wanted to do that shit. Right. You know, I, I got to do the stuff I really wanted to do that I was inspired to do. Uh, and your friend Tim Evans and I, we, we tried Doug Tinker, uh, uh, Ed Millette, Dick Tinker. And there were so many lawyers that you were so proud to be in the courtroom with. Uh, uh, and we had... We had a, a grand old time, and I still enjoy walking into courtrooms uh, and representing citizens. Uh, I worked for my dad, who had a corporate firm here for a little while. This, Our offices have been in this building for uh, over 70 years. So, uh, But uh, I didn't enjoy re representing things and money. I, um, people's lives and their liberty were important. Uh, important to them, uh, important to me, and I think important in the long run to society. Uh, and I think the criminal defense bar plays an important role in our institutions, uh, and we can take a great deal of pride in what we do. Excellent, excellent. Um, I'm gonna hand it off to Andrew Harris. He's gonna ask you a couple of questions. Jerry, uh, over a, just such a, a long prestigious career do you have that that favorite case uh andrew and i often talk about you know we like to tell the war stories or the successes that we've had i always seem to go back to the same story and and i've i've been uh licensed for for about uh, just over 10 years now um but i can imagine that you probably have 10 favorite cases but is there one that just sticks out in your head Quite frankly, uh, you forget more shit than you remember. Right, yeah. Uh, but uh, if you look around on our walls or all the wonderful news clippings of all the cases we won, uh, a famous lawyer, Michael Kennedy, came from New York once and he said, Goldstein, if you put up an article for every case you lost, you'd need two or three more buildings. Uh, <laughs> the truth of the matter is it is the cases uh, that make your career in uh, I kind of like walking around. Uh, I even, I, they remind me of wonderful times. Yeah. Uh, that wonderful gen gentleman that I started the practice with my dad and Maury Maverick Jr. And uh, Maury Maverick told me back in 68, he said, you know, Jerry, the practice of criminal law is a, it's like the old hen in the hen yard. Peck, 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 peck all over the place. Every hundred pecks you come up with a kernel of corn. Uh, the rest of the time, it's a beak full of shit. And uh, uh, you're willing to wade through the shit uh, for those kernels of corn. Every one of them are wonderful. And it's not just the cases that you won, that you heard the two-word verdict. Uh, it's the people, uh, uh, many of whom, uh, uh, you know, back in the old days, you got repeat business even if you did lose a case. Right. Yeah. You know, there were things like probation and, uh, sentences where people actually got out at some point. Uh, now, uh, these draconian sentences, uh, 
we need to re-look at what we're doing. I mean, there's no reason why the United States should be leading the world in incarcerating the largest percentage of our population. And by the way, by and large, they're the poor, the disenfranchised, the people of color. Uh, we can't take any pride in what we're doing. And uh, the idea that the collateral consequences, not only are we blocking them up forever, uh, they can't get a job when they get out. They can't get, we deprive them of food stamps, of the right to vote, of uh, yep. just, you know, the. Uh, and then we wonder why they go back to crime. Well, shit, they've been locked up for 10 years with a bunch of other crooks, and uh, we don't give them any education, we don't provide them with any rehabilitation, and they sit around jerking off talking to each other about committing crimes. Right. So, yeah, duh. Yeah. The... Um I know, you know, early in your career, you um, represented uh, what was the normal case. Uh, I don't know if you could speak on that. Well, the, the gentleman that started normal is a gentleman by the name of Keith Strop. He yes, was sir. actually an old law partner of mine. Uh, and he put me on the board of normal in 1970, probably before the two of you were born. Uh, and uh, that's how I met Hunter Thompson. Uh, Hunter was on the board with me, uh, which brings me, you know, th th was Hunter fun to represent? He was the biggest pain in the ass, uh, probably a bigger pain in the ass than any client I've ever had. But, uh, you know, what a eclectic life to right. be able to, you know, I'd go out to Owl Farm, his place outside of Aspen, and, you know, you get to talk about sports with George Plimpton or watch a nude female motorcycle gang from Louisiana. Yes. You know, it's hot tub. It was, you know, it was one thing or another. But, you know, that, what a wonderful deal. You know, when we, when the, you know, our representative in two vacations, one of the first cases, he makes the front page of the Aspen Times uh, after the DA dismissed the uh, Charles charges against him. He said, that's a total act of cowardice, and I've instructed Mr. Goldstein to appeal my case to the Supreme Court at once. Uh, so, you know, we, we did have fun along the way as well as uh, get to represent people. In. Sounds like it. All right, so uh, is there, because there are cases and then there are legal issues, and those are sometimes very different. Sure. Is there a legal issue that sits kind of at the core of your being, one that you, that you like going to bat on on any given day? Uh, Maybe it's, not a winner, but one that that, that it's has probably the particular sorry it's probably the particular issue on a given day. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time concerned about our rights to privacy because I think that's one of the things that when a totalitarian government uh, imposes its will on the people. Uh, your, uh, your right to protest, your right to speak is probably at the, at the crux of, uh, uh, of freedom. And, uh, you know, when you, when you look at what's going on today, and I'm going to speak about this on Saturday to our group, uh, technology has changed a lot. It, it is, by its very nature, it's stealing from us our expectation of privacy, whatever that is. And that term may be a fleeting uh, part of our legal history. 
but uh, it I am concerned that this originalist concept, Scalia's and now Gorsuch, who's a textualist, um, and Kavanaugh, uh, this idea that we look to the interpretation of our founding fathers at the time that the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were written. Well, I've talked about this before, but think about it. The, the words that those founding fathers wrote, I think it was Thomas Jefferson, all men are created equal. They meant that. They were not gender perfect. Women didn't get the right to vote or sit on juries until half a century after African Americans. And really it was white landowning men were yeah, created equal. Exactly, and we now know that the uh, our constitutional rights can't be the exclusive domain of the privileged few. Uh, uh, times have changed, so have we. And when you, when you get down to it, uh, the founding fathers were afraid of something a little different. They, it, we still have it. They were afraid of the Red Coasts using a writ of assistance and breaking down their, their front door and rummaging through their underwear drawers. Uh, they, they were worried about protecting persons, houses, papers, and effects. And you, Gorsuch and uh, Thomas still believe those are the only things. I, I believe Scalia and probably Gorsuch would argue that businesses may not, they're not how businesses, houses, uh, businesses are not houses or people or, or uh, effects. We may be, I, I, we can't limit it to what they were looking at. I mean, they were looking at a physical search, something that you could feel, see, taste. These, this new electronic surveillance, the digital data mining that you see today, it's stealth-like. It, you can't see it, you can't feel it. Uh, and perhaps it's more dangerous, perhaps it's more sinister because of that, because it, it it's cuts at the crossroads between your right under the Fourth Amendment to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures and your First Amendment rights to free speech, uh, to free uh, association. And maybe it's still something more valuable than your, than your effects or your property. Uh, it steals your thoughts and your communications and Maybe that was what the founding fathers were the most afraid of. Right. Yeah. One of the, the technology pieces they that they would have had no idea of that that bothers me. You end up with a guy on a bond bond caseload. So you and I and, and Mr. Harris all know that means that he's not been convicted of anything, or she. But because of the nature of the offense, they're on a bond and they strap an ankle monitor on him. So effectively. That person is never free from search because his location is known 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the Chief Justice, in unanimous opinion, which I know you all are familiar with, Roddy versus California, talks about the fact that knowing every place you go and every place, not just the town, the city, the building, but the room and the part of the room that you're in uh, is uh, different qualitatively and quantitatively than what we normally used to see. It used to require real-time searching. It required a lot of resources. That's not true anymore. If we walk around with a <laughs> digital monitor called a GPS device, and it's built into our, it, as long as our phone is not turned off, we don't have to be talking about it. it it's telling somebody. It's telling them where you are. And we're thankful it helped us find your office. Well, and by the, <laughs> and by the way, that, that's one of the problems, convenience. Right. Uh, uh, security. 
it's having security cameras everywhere. Think about it, Sernaryev, or the guy that in the Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, Lord and Taylor, a, a commercial enterprise, had a, had a security camera. It caught him red-handed. Uh, but just think about within days, they had his, his telephone conversation with his mom. Uh, how did they get that? Did they, did, were they listening to his phone? No. All international telephone calls are digital. They're not, we don't transmit them by wire anymore or by radio signal. Well, just like they can grasp the numbers that you dial, that digital, they now have, Google actually provides a mechanism to search the digital communication so that they are able to figure out who it is. They can now, we won't get into how <laughs> scary it is, but it's, we've come a long way and it's, uh, and with all the convenience and all the security, uh, it, it means that we have no longer the autonomy uh, of a, a free person in the sense that the government isn't aware of everything we do. Look, Walmart knows what aisle you walk down when you walk into the store, but they can't find a 777 jumbo jet in the South Indian Sea. There's a reason for that. It's commercially viable. And uh, we may have crossed that threshold. We may not be able to ever get that back. Title III, the wiretap statute, federal wiretap statute, makes it a crime for anybody uh, to wiretap. Uh, that was easy. Who wiretaps? Police and jealous spouses. Uh, but this other information, the digital mining of who you're calling, what you're interested in, where you are, what you do, is viable demo de demographics to politicians, to retailers, to any marketing uh, operation, and they are using that. They're gonna, they're gonna, they're stealing that from us. And uh, interestingly enough, there are private companies that now sell that information to the law enforcement, so that it's not any, any longer. It's and some of them do little else. And so this idea of state action, there's there's no requirement of state action technically, literally in the Constitution. Uh, we may have to rethink that. It may maybe we need to in this digital age. Maybe we need to expand that to include uh, anyone uh, acquiring that kind of information. It's, it's what the Chief Justice said in Riley. Uh, it, it, it has everyone's information. It has everything about you. It's your entire life that's in that, in a, in a computer we call a cell phone. Right. Uh, and, uh, if we want to preserve privacy, and I'll be honest with you, the younger generation may not be as interested in it. They might like the, my son loves the idea that they tell him, well, you bought that, you might like this. They're not just looking at what he just bought. They've got a profile. Everything, they know when he took a dump. <laughs> they know everything about it. No, it's, uh, you know, when you. Well, you now know. you can take a dump in a box and find out if you have cancer. I mean, they, yeah. they really do know exactly when it well, happens. Well, and, and in China, they had a recent, I read an article in the, Atlantic Magazine a few months back that in China they now have facial recognition, I hope it's facial, recognition in public toilets that uh, they, they've determined that 23.6 inches of toilet paper uh, is adequate. And when you use more than that much toilet paper, it cuts you off 
and then if you come back within nine minutes, it I hope it recognizes your face, <laughs> and it, it, it won't give you any toilet paper, which may save uh, a lot of trees, uh, but think of all the, uh, the wasteful detergent that is being used just to clean your underwear after having to stop <laughs> mid Mid, After mid having white. Chinese food? Yeah, mid, mid white. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right. Um, you want to ask the, our last two questions? The last three questions? I, get, I get the easy questions. Uh, Jerry, you, you host a famous party every year uh, during Rusty Duncan. And uh, you know I love parties. I, yeah. Well, it, it's evident because it's, a, it's, a, it's one to look forward to every year. Pachanga at your house. Um, so speaking of parties, do you have a favorite band? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the greatest rock and roll band that ever walked the face of the earth was is the Rolling Stones, and I was glad to see the Mick uh, up and around, and uh, we've got tickets to see them uh, at Red Rocks in Denver. I saw them first in Amsterdam in 1963, before the Beatles came to the United States, and the streets had been painted with the words Rolling Stone. Uh, these guys are forever. By the way, Keith Richards had a BBC uh, show with him. He did interviews. He was living in New York, but he did it for BBC. And he came out to Al Farm to interview Hunter one time. And I was the designated uh, prop with, with Hunter. And the two of them spent easily 45 minutes. You know, and no one, including the, <laughs> the text, could understand a single word. Either one of them said, oh but they seem to be engaged in this wonderful conversation, and <laughs> they—I'm sure they understood each other perfectly. Uh, but those guys, and I'm—I'm I'm dying to get some um, Keith Richards monkey blood. I mean, I—it's I, yeah. kept him alive. Look, you look at that guy; he looks like death, warmed over. <laughs> yeah. But he's still out there cranking that guitar. Yeah. Uh, you know, you want to talk about how did they get up every morning, and put their pants on, and do this? It's amazing to me. That anyway, is amazing. Anyway, I like their their music. I love. I I never cease to enjoy listening to some of those tunes. And my son, who's 28, uh, uh, agrees with me. Although he listens to a lot of techno stuff that I find uh, tedious and irritating, but he's a big <laughs> rock and roll fan. He loves listening to that. At his bar mitzvah, by the way, in Aspen. Uh, pulled up and the car had cranked up on the CD uh, Jimi Hendrix cover of All Along the Watchtower. Mm -hmm. And I thought, God, the only thing that's lacking is the windows rolled down with the marijuana smoke coming out of it. But yep. uh, he now lives in the free state of Colorado and is very happy. <laughs> very good. Very good. What about a uh, favorite book? Uh, I'm old-fashioned and I'm a, I'm a Hemingway file. Uh, uh, I did, in 64, I ran with the Bulls in Pamplona at San Fermin. Uh, and a few years back, I took my son and his best buddy uh, to take the trip by train from San Sebastian to, uh, to Pamplona. But I made them read um, The Sun Also Rises three times, uh, and there was a pop quiz along the way. Uh, and I'm glad to say that they did very well. Of course. Well, well, again, thank you so much for your time. I want to ask you one more question. Sure. How would people find you if they hear this and they're like, I need that guy? 
uh, as my attorney. How would they find you or how would they find your office? Well, we're in the tallest building on the top floor. Uh, and what, when I was a young youngster in the 50s, uh, this was the tallest building in the largest city in the largest state uh, in the union. Uh, a lot's changed since then. Uh, you can find me uh, uh, on the internet. Uh, my phones are all listed. Uh, but let me tell you something. There's a group called the Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Association that's a marvelous uh, organization. And there's younger lawyers better than I uh, who are actively participating, actively engaged in the defense of citizens, I always like to say wrongfully accused of crime. And I would suggest reaching out to your local members of the Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Association, TCDLA. Uh, you're going to be surprised. Uh, uh, Jerry Goldstein uh, might be the oldest member of the group, uh, but there's a remarkable, dedicated defense lawyer in a place near you. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. That wraps up our interview with Jerry Goldstein. Uh, Andrew, wow. I mean, that guy is uh, something else. I mean, he will forget more than I will ever know. You know what I mean? He just forgot more guys. in that interview than I will ever that's know. That's right. That's right. And, I mean, we're just on the 29th floor of the tower building in his office, the very top floor, downtown San Antonio, overlooking Alamo Plaza, uh, you know, just the imagery of that location is just so profound when hearing him just kind of just take that interview and run with it. Right. Part of what they didn't, what we didn't get recorded was he played the bugle call that Santa Ana played from almost exactly yeah. where we were sitting that let the men in the Alamo know there will be no quarter. If you stay and fight, you will be put to death and, right. and, and all of them die. It's just unbelievable um, and just really appreciative uh, appreciative of uh, Mr. Goldstein's time. Um, really great stuff. Um, and I think we've got some, some more great content coming your way. Exactly. Next time, uh, the same afternoon that we interviewed Jerry, we also interviewed a friend of mine. I've known her for about five years, Michelle Ochoa. She's a public defender, so she has a very different uh, dynamic, different ideas, um, but it was still highly informative and entertaining, and it was fun to be there with my friend at that point. And we will find Michelle in the interview next time. As always, thank you so much for joining us and, and putting up with Andrew and Andrew as we uh, kind of stumble through the early phases of our podcast. This is Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. Find us on Facebook. Like us. Um, we're on iTunes. Leave us a rating and review. Also, texascrimdefense.com. Our contact information is there. Feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to hear what you think about the podcast or answer any questions you have about uh, criminal defense in the state of Texas. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time when we're interviewing Michelle Ochoa in episode number four.